at the end of the day, you're not experiencing somebody else's story. It has to have relevance to you. It has to have something that speaks to your own needs moment to moment and your own desires. Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the old story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories. everyone, it's a new Data Stories. Today it's only me, no Enrico, he's stuck in a meeting or a conference, <laughs> I'll figure out later. But um, yeah, here I am and I'm recording with a very special guest we uh, wanted to have on the show for a long time already and I'm super happy that it finally worked out. Um, welcome to Data Stories, Scott McLeod. Hi Scott. Hey Moritz, how are you? Hey, I'm fantastic. How are you? Quite well. Very cool. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm a longtime fan of your work. I discovered um, your books yeah, probably 10 years ago or something. I was super fascinated with uh, an important work of yours that we will surely talk about called Understanding Comics. It's a comic book about how to make comics. It's almost as funny as making a podcast about data visualization. So <laughs> kudos for that. <laughs> But before we go into that, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Who are you? What are you interested in? What are you working on right now? Anything that helps our listeners understand what you're about? Well, um, I seem to go through a series of obsessions in my life, but uh, I cycled through about a dozen of them before I was 14 years old. And then I discovered comics and that became my lifelong obsession. Um, I decided very early on I wanted to make comics for a living, and I did a lot of fiction comics at the beginning. But then, as as you mentioned, I did a book called Understanding Comics in 1993, mm -hmm. which was my attempt to explain why I thought comics were a unique art form and how we processed the ideas, um, that, you know, implicit in all of those images, um, and and just made sense of what was going on on the page and between the panels especially. Right. And I like the idea that it was um, a unique medium rather than uh, just a hybrid of words and pictures, which is what a lot of people had previously treated it as. It, it is that, it is a hybrid, but I think at its core, it's how we uh, create a kind of temporal map. Um, and that's, a lot of people know me for that and other nonfiction books uh, that are done in comics form. Mm -hmm. And then uh, various other things like my experiments with web comics and um, uh, my doomed advocacy for micropayments in the early aughts and <laughs> <laughs> various other uh, sidelines. And But it, that's uh, still a hot topic, actually, micropayments. So maybe you were just uh, ahead of the curve. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, some people are, are proposing walking around with shirts that say Scott McLeod was right, but I'm actually going to demur <laughs> on that one. I think what I was advocating for was a little different than what we're getting with crowdfunding and, and, and all. Although, yeah. although crowdfunding is um, exposing something that I was very interested in at the time, which was the power of the consumer dollar when it's diluted only a little bit rather than a lot. Because in, in the print world, of course, the author gets maybe uh, 10 cents on the dollar if, if he or she is lucky. And uh, that's not remotely true 
in the world of crowdfunding. So that that's an interesting development. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. Let me come back to to understanding comics. So you just said two very interesting things that are, I, I guess, at the heart of the book. So you said the the actual like the comic happens in the gaps between the panels mm-hmm. and I'd, i'd love to hear more about that and the other thing that intrigues me as a data visualization expert is of course this notion of a temporal map so maybe we can talk about these two notions so what, what do you mean with the gaps well the idea is that of course we have to stitch together um a sense of continuous time and narrative from fragments and that's something that even when i was 33 working on the book I saw that this had pretty wide applications for just the way that we process our sense of reality. Um, I didn't know much about visual cognition in, in those days. I was using the term closure. I didn't even know that that came from, uh, you know, the world of the Gestalt, you know, the Ber- mm-hmm. Berlin school. Yeah. But, um, but that idea that, that we, we only ever experience the world in these tiny shards, these tiny fragments, and we have to patch it together in our minds was something that was very exciting to me because I saw it on the page. I saw how we had this staccato rhythm of these little postage stamp-like um, images, and they were still images, but we nevertheless had that illusion of movement mm-hmm. as we as we played in-betweener, you know, as we managed to to cement those those gaps in between, those blinks. Mm-hmm. Um And uh, and so that for me that was the essential quality of the art form. There were plenty of other things involved in the art form, the things that filled those panels, the art of drawing, the art of writing, all of those things, but they weren't the essential component for me. The essential component was what happened in the mind between those images. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's probably the what sets comics and cartoons apart from other media, right? Is that other media. Or maybe more like if you have a full movie, be it even an animated movie, it fills these gaps immediately. <laughs> like these are like all the interpolation is happening already. And exactly. maybe there's different types of conclusions or like, how do you say, like this the sense making happening happening on a different level, but it's more filled out already, maybe. Well, our, all art forms are uh, trade-in fragments. I mean, even film, mm-hmm. you know, it no longer has that mechanical need to to play in between or to to fill in the gaps. You right. you have the persistence of vision, but you still, of course, um, do quite a lot of stitching together, a lot of suture with things like scene changes or just the crop at the edge of the the the, uh, the frame. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we we still perceive a continuous world beyond that frame as we do. Just in our everyday life, when we're walking about, we only see what's in front of us, but we still have that sense of what's behind us. And as people who've studied vision will tell you, you know, we have to infer uh, the existence of of what's around us in 3D space, even though we're only seeing surfaces, we're only seeing edges and surfaces, and we have to somehow forever construct a sense of object permanence and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's super fascinating. And, and I see so many parallels and analogies to data visualization. So maybe let's connect oh, yeah. the lines already. I, I wanted to do that <laughs> later, but let's dive right in. So one one of the panels from your books I love to show in presentations is the one actually about frames and how different frames can evoke, well, you can use them or see them as decoration for the image, right? But the most powerful mm-hmm. thing that a frame actually does is put somebody in a certain spot in the world and say, you're now here and now look there, like to point somebody really to a phenomenon or 
to give them to provide them with a viewpoint right and yes i think this is the most powerful thing data visualization can also is you know is just to what data visualization can do is to say like here's a phenomenon here's a way to look at it now look <laughs> and i think this is something that when i saw that in the comic book i was super i don't know totally blown away with this this observation well that that visual rhetoric is if you think of it as taking your hand and placing it upon the head uh-huh. of the viewer and turning that head you know this is this is in one way or another this is the form of visual rhetoric that any kind of visual explanation is going to take advantage of and of course what i do when i'm working on nonfiction is it's very explicitly a form of visual rhetoric although it's true of fiction as well um you are directing focus you are in in one way or another, you're always editing the world, and mm-hmm. in fact, that it's a very violent and and thorough form of editing because, in many respects, you have to edit out uh, the vast majority of all visual stimuli to say no, only think about this, think yeah. about this right now, mm-hmm. and we do this in a variety of ways. If it's animation, then we're siloing each idea in time. In comics, we're siloing it in space as a marker for time. We're saying that as your eye moves to this little box, this is representing a moment in time. And so we're able to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, command focus that way. And then there are all these other ways that you can create a visual display that may have an all-at-onceness, but there's still those, uh, that feature-level level tuning going on where f- either figure or ground or some other visual cue is allowing us to uh, selectively separate out all of this uh, visual stimuli uh, and just see the one thing at a time. Uh, and then in interaction, we're able to do it uh, more explicitly. We're able to say, yeah, hover, hover your mouse over this or, or select this option, and then you can see just that one trend line, like, mm-hmm. like Amanda Cox's um, The Unemployment Rate for People Like You, mm-hmm. where, you can, where you can simply say, I just want to see this one thing now. Yeah. Um, so, so this is what we're doing. We're, we are um, blinkering the world. We're, we're uh, saying, everything else, go away. Let me just see this one thing now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a lot about um, guiding attention and... Uh framing things in a certain way presenting things in a specific way i think there's a lot of really yeah huge parallels and yeah you would think there's maybe illustration is illustration and fiction is fiction but as data visualization artists we are uh, designers we do very different things but i see a lot of parallels actually in, in how how these things apply i mean in general, what do you think, like how does studying or reading a, a complex chart maybe or a sequence of charts or a big map or something, how does that relate to reading a comic or cartoon? Do, do the same principles apply actually or is it different? Do you think, is it important if it's fiction or facts that we're talking about? Like what, what's, your, what's your feeling there? I think when done well, there's more commonality. That is, I think that, that probably the best practices in all of these fields are those that draw from the same wellspring of of basic human really animal needs you know i think a lot a lot of a lot of what works in terms of visual rhetoric regardless of what discipline you're in has a lot to do with how we're wired as animals um, to uh, to be attracted to motion to be attracted to things that seem to be alive 
to uh, you know our our need to find things that are relevant to us, um, and that that actually I think is is where story comes in. I think there, I often see a lot of sort of false starts in trying to apply the idea of story to data visualization, mm-hmm. and and I think partially that has to do with my own peculiar definition of story, um, and and partially it has to do with the fact that. That really it has more to do with the user as protagonist, because at the end of the day, uh, you're not experiencing somebody else's story. It has to have relevance to you. It has to have something that speaks to your own needs moment to moment and your own desires. Um, that's, that's why it tends to work. Um, and so if you're, if you're alert to the things that speak to the part of your mind that's been there for millions of years, you're probably you're probably uh, heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And th- that's an interesting point. So do you think a s- any story, in order to be interesting, needs to have something to do with the audience? I mean, now that I say it, it sounds pretty obvious, but I think that that's an interesting observation that we cannot leave the listener out of the loop there if, if we want to have successful storytelling. Well, I should probably put my cards on the table. I have a weird definition of story. I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, give it to uh, us. <laughs> okay, almost almost anyone will will um, will tell you that your characters must have some kind of desire that you that you right. have to track yeah. what those yeah. what the um, what the characters be a want. Probably too. Yeah. yeah. Well, in fact, I think you can actually shelve conflict because conflict is the consequence of desire. Ah. So desire desire really comes first in that respect. Okay. Um, Kurt Vonnegut said every character must want something, even if it's only a glass of water, and I agree. <laughs> but um, however, I think that in many respects, thinking of a story as populated by characters that possess desires is actually less um, less helpful than thinking of stories as the life cycle of a desire itself. Ah. And the ways and the ways in which that desire express express themselves through characters. This is a little like Dawkins' selfish gene, the idea of yeah. of uh, of, gen, of genes expressing themselves through humans. That that we are the device by which a gene propagates itself. <laughs> you know, if you if you look at most stories, stories very rarely take you from the birth of a character to the death of that character, but right. stories very frequently take you from the gestation and birth of a desire on the part of more than one and one or more characters to the point at which that desire comes to rest either it's fulfilled denied or transformed mm-hmm. um, and and you can really go th- go through des- uh, stories in many many different genres and this they tend to follow this pattern so if that's the case then <laughs> Then you, the, the, I just the, the, need the, to digest that. That's, that's such a crazy <laughs> theory. <laughs> it seems it's, to work. I mean, like, yeah. I'll, and I'll it, let me get back good. to that later. Yeah. But it seems to work right now. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Really well, also, nice. it's really good. It's good for writer's block too, because uh-huh. because often when when a story falls apart, it's because you don't have a clear understanding of of the desire and and yeah. where a story really is relevant to people is the way in which you, the desire is interrogated where we think about what's the worth of the desire what's the origin of the desire and then when the story really works of course is when the audience shares in that desire mm-hmm. and so and they become a vehicle for the desire too <laughs> yeah right. and they have to they have to interrogate themselves their own like right, right. why do i want this you know that kind of thing yeah yeah 
Um, I have to think of Inside Out, the Pixar movie. Did you see that one? <laughs> I love Inside Out. Yeah, yeah it's Inside Out's great. And um, so, yeah, there's also this it, inversion of control, basically, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's taking it apart, and mm -hmm. and in fact, they really are uh, making uh, personalizing each of those desires. Also, you know, in Inside Out, they have five emotions, and those five emotions map perfectly to five of the six universal expressions that people like Paul Ekman wow. talk about. It's very interesting. It's all connected. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, I, I listened to the uh, episode, recent episode where, where you and several people were talking uh, about Hans Rosling. Yeah. And storytelling comes up in connection with Hans. And, uh, and it's true, there's that sense of story there. Um, but I think that where that story really connects with, with the viewer is in the implicit desire of improving those standards of living uh, and health mm -hmm. worldwide. Mm -hmm. there's, there's built in a desire to see that motion that we then see. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that, that it's a positive anomaly that's being detected by the data. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't work as well if it was about just physics or just sports data or Right, so you're saying the content of what he's talking about is is part of that fascination with Hans. Yeah, I think that I think that our fascination with any data set is probably going to hinge uh, first on anomalies because it's true that we we don't measure, we compare, mm. and then the, the the notion that this in some way is bringing us closer to some kind of meaningful goal on our own part, some desire that we have to better understand the world to a purpose. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a sort of a very ambivalent <laughs> relationship with the word storytelling, especially in a data context, um, because I think often it's just misused. And there was a time maybe two or three years ago when everything was about storytelling and everything yep. was a story. Branding was about storytelling suddenly. Uh, cooking was about storytelling. Everything was about <laughs> storytelling. It was like, it can't be true. I mean, there's nothing beyond storytelling and maybe stories are also not for everything the best vehicle right yeah. and stories have their own like they bring their own logic and forces with them like you want a resolution and you're looking for it regardless of the facts like if you're caught up in a story the story dom dominates what you do right so right. Uh, so i have a lot of problems with that but at the same time i find it so fascinating and you're absolutely right that if we really want to engage people and we really want their attention you always need some sort of storytelling thing going on in some ways. Some yeah. kind of desire. But I mean, but yeah. the, it can be the desire of the user themselves. And that's, that's actually on that, that spectrum from, uh, from narr the narrative world to the world of games. Oh, because yeah. the thing that defines games is that the user is the author of their own experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that often it's closer to that, that it's the, it's the world of the user. It's the, tr it's the journey of the user. Yeah. Um, that's more relevant. And then, and yeah, I think actually it is good to put aside this idea of story, but to not put aside the relevance to the human animal, you know, to mm -hmm. what are you, what are we getting out of it? Why, why do we want to know this? Mm -hmm. Um, how can it help us or how can it help others that we may have an emotional or community connection to? Yeah. These are things that, that any kind of primate understands on some level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a lot of the tension comes from that, well, traditionally data and measurements are associated with scientific activity. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the whole idea in science is to abstract away from your own 
peculiarities, your own emotional state, and work on that uh, air quotes objective level. <laughs> But it uh, always reality. it always comes around. It comes around like Haley's comment because the any subject sufficiently understood, regardless of how complex it is, mm -hmm. eventually can be summed up in in a form that that does in the end have some emotional resonance mm -hmm. that does that is not detached it's you know we imagine it as being at these these uh, increasing levels of emotional altitude where we no longer it no longer has that that sort of uh, excitement but that's not true at all it's just you you find that that those who understand even the most complex subjects the best can usually reduce them to something that's entirely relevant Mm -hmm. to our experience, entirely relevant to our emotional life. Um, that's why people like Feynman were so valuable for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and you're right. And they, again, touch people in a specific way, right? They sort of, if you hear Feynman talk, it's, it does something with you. It's like you, you're not that objective, rational being just taking in facts. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's a, form a personal of, component there, right? I mean, like, what what is the one of the basic purposes of cognition, especially visual cognition, is to find our place spatially in, in the world. And in many cases, this is, you know, it's a variation on that idea of, of uh, finding your place. You know, to say you are here in a, in a broader sense, not just mm -hmm. in a sense of where you are in the Serengeti, but where you are in this sort of experiential universe. Um, that's something that that notion of new eyes is something that I think is is going to be increasingly important because mm -hmm. we're becoming increasingly aware of how blinkered our existence is, how many different metrics you know you can measure the human experience by to see what a tiny spectrum uh, uh, we we can experience. It's it's very much like the visual spectrum, right? We mm -hmm. all know that that the electromagnetic spectrum allows for this tiny little sliver that we can actually perceive and everything else is invisible to us. That same experience applies to a lot of other things too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of visualization, I think, increasingly will be about trying to reveal where we stand in uh, the landscape of time, where we stand in the landscape of space, where we stand in the landscape of scale, for example. Scale is a very hard thing to get across. Mm-hmm. That sounds to me as if you could have a lot of fun with the recent developments in VR. <laughs> Did you try some of the new virtual reality devices? Uh, do you have thoughts about like integrating maybe a knowledge about comics with with that oh, yeah, building no. type thing? Uh, oh, oh, this this definitely comes <laughs> up. I I spent a little time with Tilt Brush up at Google and mm -hmm. talked to the Tilt Brush team about it. Yeah, and you know one thing about VR is, of course, you know the basics have been there for a long time. And um, and we've had a lot of false starts, right? You sure, know, we had sure. a lot of twenty years ago. People were saying, yeah, "Oh, it's right, right around the corner." Yeah. Um, but I think we we misunderstand. First, there were the technical problems of just latency and stuff like that, and ma making sure that it didn't make people throw up. But then also, yeah. there was, I think, a misunderstanding of what VR was good for. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you can you can discern depth and and spatial arrangements in so many different ways. You know, if you want to know where the couch and the chair and the lamp are, you can walk around them. You can judge it by occlusion. You can judge it by relative sizes. 
Um, this is one of the reasons why people putting on 3D glasses in movies, hmm. um, they enjoy it. It's fun, but it doesn't dramatically change the movie-going experience. Right. And I think one of the reasons is because VR is not a spectator sport. It's not just about experiencing things passively. Mm -hmm. um, because the reason we have that, that parallax view, Stereopsis has a very specific evolutionary purpose, and that is precise manipulation in space. So it's when you reach out your hand and do something in space where it matters exactly how far away from your eyes your hands are. That's when it gets exciting. And that's why I found playing with tilt brush uh, to be a bit of a revelation. It's because being able to thread that needle, you know, with these lines in space, these painted lines, that felt like finally the, the, that missing puzzle piece was in. Mm -hmm. And, and, my brain just was on fire with, yeah, this is why, this is why we have two eyes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that and, and chasing down prey <laughs> and eating, eating things in mm -hmm. the environment. You know, yeah. that's when I started to face forward in the, you know, in the Cambrian period. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting point. And I, I'm still sort of waiting how this VR thing plays out. I also have a few data visualization ideas in VR, but as you say, it's not clear yet what the exact role of that medium is. And to me, that's also connected of, well, how does this sort of rich, nonlinear, exploratory storytelling actually, how is that even possible? Or is it even something people want, right? Is Maybe the whole point of storytelling is, or like enjoying a story, is that you don't interact or that you give up control and just get on, like get along for the ride. And maybe it's also sometimes too much to always have to do something. What's your take on that? There are two things in there. I mean, we have to separate them out. One is the use of the tool as visual explanation. And that's separate from the notion of mm -hmm. uh, different paths. Mm -hmm. um, you know, branching paths is something that we have available to us in, in a variety of forms. Um, but just going back to just the simple business of introducing a third dimension mm -hmm. and stereopsis into visual explanations, that one is uh, s something I think that we're going to find very exciting when we're trying to simply explain structures, mm -hmm. visual structures. I yeah. had to, in the course of working on the book that I'm working on right now, I had to explain how the eye worked and and even how the mind is is constructed. Yeah. And I I got to tell you there are a lot of terrible diagrams of the eye out yeah. there. Yeah. And a lot of it is because that that particular structure is really resistant to uh to explanations in flatland. Mm -hmm. It's very very hard to do in flatland. And the brain as well. It's you always just see a slice and you're always confused about what, what is oh. where. Yeah. The brain is is nuts. <laughs> it's horrible. Um, yeah. But but when you when you have full even even without goggling in, I just have an iPad app that mm. shows the different parts of the brain, and they're in rotation. They're translucent, yeah. and you can rotate them, and it makes all the difference. And and no no amount of old fashioned line drawings was ever going to accomplish that for me. You have to be able to rotate that sucker sure, in order sure. to understand where things truly are. Yeah. So that's going to be tremendously useful, I think, just in terms of explanation. The mm -hmm. multipath stuff is something that I was dealing with early on when I was looking at, you know, potential virtual comics. And, and there again, I think you have to go back to the idea of who's in control. Is it the user or is it the author? And I think there's a, there's a lot of anxiety when that's ambivalent, <laughs> when you have a sense that, yes, I can choose 
the first path, the second path, or the third path, mm-hmm. but somebody has it all mapped out for me, and it's not really a true possibility, you mm-hmm. know, a limitless possibility space. It's it's a rigged game, you know, because the author could only make so many paths for me. Yeah. That's like the interactive movie, like where you just have binary choices, and at some point exactly. you realize it's all the same. I win or lose. And that's yeah, it. it's it's like a cutscene in a video game. It's just frustrating. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, everybody skips those, right? So yeah, yeah. There's I think that there's there's a there's a tendency towards simplicity. That is, we really want our art forms to eventually resolve themselves into something extremely simple. Mm-hmm. Either I'm in control. Or the author is either I lean forward or lean back. Mm-hmm. I think that we tend to be a little uncomfortable when when it's sort of flickering in the middle. That, that's very interesting, and yeah, that that has a lot to do with like how you, again how you frame the whole experience and how you set it up and what you encourage. So yeah, maybe just provide clarity on that straight away. The exact same thing suddenly works, which which was maybe a bit confusing before. That's a that's a great point. Yeah, what are some other things? Like from your perspective, what people working with data and data presentations um, could learn from uh, comic artists and and great visual storytellers uh, like you. Like, wh- what do you think? What what are the main things that we are still not getting <laughs> that that, <laughs> that we could learn from from visual communicators in general? Well, you know, I think it goes both ways because I think as comics artists, we have a lot to learn. Sure, I no. have, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I have a lot to learn about visual explanation, so I'm looking to other forms to help me. I think most nonfiction explanatory comics are not that good, to be quite frank. I think that right. um, if there's one lesson that I think we all need to learn is that you know, if I don't need to think it, I don't need to see it. Mm-hmm. And this this applies to PowerPoint as well. This applies to any number of visual explanations. Is that every visual decision generates meaning? What I think of as collateral meaning, you know. So so there are a lot of artifacts, visual artifacts, and comics explanations that that don't help to further the information. They 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 distract from the information. Okay. Um. Or or in like in animation. I mean, I've seen some very good visual explanations in animation. But they'll be filled with a number of transitions where things are coming in from the side or <laughs> expanding. And mm-hmm. and I look at those and I think, you know what? When that little item comes in from the left and then some other item comes in from the right, the maker of that particular uh, animated film, they were thinking that that was a nice way to jazz it up to make it look interesting. Right, but right. But our eye can't help but assign meaning to that. Something uh-huh. coming in from the left has a different meaning than something coming in from the right. Something mm-hmm. that expands in scale, that can't just be a way of popping something into the frame. We're going to assign significance to it, at least subliminally. We're going to think mm-hmm. that that matters, that, mm-hmm. that we're being told something about that little nugget of data. So you have to be very, very careful that you're not generating a lot of uh, other cues. You know, I look at airline safety cards, for example, you know, will often have a lot of ex- excess visual information. And, you know, one of the consequences is that, um, uh, and this is a good test, I think, for any kind of visualization taken modularly, is when you're looking at one part of the display, is your peripheral vision, your immediate peripheral, that little, that little periphery around it, is it also rendering to your mind successfully? Or... Mm-hmm. Can you only really grok what you're looking at when it's right in the center, when it's right in the fovea? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think very 
clearly rendered images, I think, tend to tend to be better in the peripheral so that you, you're looking at the whole thing and it's very clear rather than you have to like dig through and, and it, and you can only open little, like a little, um, um, what is it? Seventh, uh, seventh day Adventist calendar. You can only open like, like these little, <laughs> <laughs> these little windows one at a yeah. time. Yeah. Um, no, it should, the whole thing should just sit and, and very serenely speak to you, even mm-hmm. when you're not looking at each and every part of it. Interesting, yeah, yeah. And one point you you keep making in understanding comics is that the right level of abstraction is so important, right? And that yeah. if you let's say you over abstract, then there's no more expression, no more character. But if you spell everything out, to then it's it's odd too, and it leaves nothing to the imagination, and nothing really interesting happens anymore if everything is readily spelled out. And this idea that sometimes just a suggestion is enough, or like a minimal hint, and then yeah. the rest falls into place automatically. I think that's a great great tip and a great observation. Yeah. Well you know cartooning is the original compression algorithm, right? I mean, you know <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I mean if you think black about black and white and like yeah. just the just the necessary essential features, right? It's it's yeah, it's like dimensionality yeah. reduction. Yeah, you're right. That is it's yeah. an extraordinary <laughs> yield, you know, in terms of compression. I mean like that that you can that you can pack things down to just a few simple lines and what unpacks in the mind of the viewer is often <laughs> tremendously rich. It's huge, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, we need to come to an end soon. Can, can you tell us a bit? So I hear you oh have, um, you have a new book project you're working on. Can you tell us a bit about that? A little bit. Yeah. It's, it's kind of in pieces on the floor because I've, um, I'm still researching a lot of, I'm doing the layouts as I go, but I, but every time I get, uh, to a new section, I have to read five books before I can draw the next four <laughs> okay. four pages. <laughs> you know, oh my God, I arrived at visual cognition, and that's uh, talk okay. about a Pandora's box. Yeah. You know, time for another PhD to get yeah. first. <laughs> time to break out the David Marr. Oh my God, but um, but yeah, it's it's just about seeing if I can um, just winnow down the the fundamental principles of of visual education and communication across disciplines. And it's, I've been mm-hmm. describing it as a kind of um, elements of style for visual communication. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, but I have to look at everything, right? So I have to, I have yeah. to look at uh, PowerPoint presentations and mm-hmm. um, posters. Uh, and yeah. Infographics, and infographics. Uh, wow. fire safety signs. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Street signs um, anyways. Or, yeah. Absolutely. Wayfinding, yeah, totally. yeah. data visualization, I, I of course. Yeah. Yeah, it just goes on. And um but at the end, you know, I'm hoping to research a very big book so I can write a very small book. Mm-hmm. Um because I would like to compression again. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> but that's that's a much harder kind of compression, but I'm mm-hmm. working very hard on it. And what format do you have in mind? Will it be a comic again or is it like a mixed textbook with illustration? What's what's your take? No, it'll definitely be a comic. I I still have <laughs> tremendous faith that comics can be used to explain um, virtually anything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there will probably be a interactive component, but right now I'm just working on the static um, uh, section. That is a static visual communication, and then we'll be on to motion and interactivity. And there may even be a little VR thingy at the end. We'll see. Oh, <laughs> that sounds amazing! Yeah, that that's a wonderful. Like, it sounds like a huge task, but I think it's such yep. a logical like extension of your current work and. Yeah, and I think a lot of people saw how 
how general the principles you describe are. So I think it's it's a perfect extension to what you have been doing anyways. But it sounds like a lot of work, really. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say, I mean, like discovering uh, writers like Tufty and, um, you know, and Donald Norman and others, I, you mm -hmm. know, what I found was if you write about any subject at all with sufficient fascination and, and persistence, if mm -hmm. you drill down far enough what happens is just like drilling down on the surface of the earth is eventually you're going to reach that molten core that in one way or another informs all those forms of expression and that's that's what i found too it's just like you just you just have to keep asking the questions and then the questions that the that those answers provide you have to you, you have to keep following that thread and eventually you, you you have to arrive at something much more general much more fundamental mm-hmm Mm -hmm. that, that's a wonderful maybe way to end this episode to think about <laughs> that the medium itself is maybe not so important and maybe if it's circles or squares is also not so important <laughs> as long as we yeah. think about what drives humans and what what humans are interested in right yes indeed yeah, there we are wonderful thanks so much for coming on the show this has been great i'd love to have you back once of course once the book is out that'd be fun i guess in like two or three months yeah <laughs> 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 anyway, no, I'm really looking forward to that. Take all the time you need. It sounds like an amazing work. So, thank you, Moritz. Yeah, thanks so much. My pleasure. Bye bye. Bye bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, here are a few ways you can support the show and get in touch with us. First, we have a page on Patreon where you can contribute an amount of your choosing per episode. As you can imagine, we have some costs for running the show and we would love to make it a community-driven project. You can find the page at patreon.com slash datastories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. Just search us in iTunes store or follow the link in our website. And we also want to give you some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're of course on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories, but we also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast. And we also have a newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox, go to our homepage data stories and look for the link that you find in the footer. And finally, you can also chat directly with us and other listeners using Slack. Again, you can find a button to sign up at the bottom of our page. And we do love to get in touch with our listeners. So if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know amazing people you want us to invite or projects you want us to talk about, let us know. That's all for now. See you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the old story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories.